Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. In my quiet time back in March, I was in Micah 4, and it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. And immediately I got a sense that the sovereign Lord was saying, get into the stream. Not the YouTube stream, not the Hulu stream, not the Vimeo stream, get into the human stream that flows to my presence. Don't stand alongside and watch as you do your internet streams, but step into my human stream that will carry you to me where I can be viewed with an everlasting eternal fulfillment. Get into the human stream, get off the viewing bank and become part of the flow. Amen. Very good, Bill. Amen. Yeah. Did you see where that guy got swallowed? That the lobster fisherman, the lobster diver in Massachusetts was swallowed by the whale. Did you see that, Elliot? You know, was swallowed by the whale. Not swallowed, I'm sorry. He was a humpback whale picked him up. He was in his mouth. And and he was spit out on the shore. And uh, he only received uh, minor injuries. He's he was on the news. He was on a number of places in the news. When I, when I was in seminary, it was assumed that the book of Jonah could not possibly have happened because no one could survive something like that. But he's not the only one who did. There was a Japanese fisherman a while ago. And I just looked at that and thought, you know, the credulity of the word of God is something that always proves itself again and again and again and again and again. Hallelujah. So the moral of the story is trust your Bible and don't dive for lobsters if you can avoid it. So there you go. <laughs> All right, listen, um, if, if you weren't able to join us last week, uh, I hope you can go back to the website and, and catch last week's message. It was really pivotal and really was great. What a great service. Um, uh, so this morning's uh, title uh, of the message is the authority and the power of a gathered local church. And, and uh, it's the beginning of this series we're doing called A Gathered People. Now, the phrase gathered church, all right? The phrase gathered church is really kind of an interesting one because from a biblical perspective, the phrase gathered church is redundant. If you don't know what that means, it's like gathered church is two words talking about the same thing like uh, a two-wheeled bicycle, okay? Or maybe uh, sporting sports or stuff like that. So, so the, the, as we'll see in just a few moments, the very word church means a gathering, okay? A gathering of people for a common purpose. And this is one of, one of the major reasons that I see this pandemic as a pointed assault, not just on church, it was a pointed assault. It is, because it's continuing across the world. It's a pointed assault on what church is, 
are, are you there? It's an existential threat. That's the philosophical fancy way of saying it. It's bigger than just our not being able to come together or not desiring to come together or forfeiting human touch and rubbing elbows and schmoozing and getting up each other's noses and all the things the church is. It is an assault on the very thing that church is. The title of this message is The Authority and the Power of a Gathered Church. But before we get into all that, okay, I would like for us to ask a few probing questions of ourselves that some of us probably never thought about asking. Here's the first one. Where does the word church that we use all the time as Christians, where does it come from? that word church, and, and the word church in scripture, where does, it, where does it come from? I mean, where is the word church, or any equivalent, Hebrew equivalent of the word church ever used in the Old Testament, that is, in the Hebrew Bible? Have you ever asked yourself about that? Or more than that, in all of the gospels, the word church is introduced by Jesus, but it, but it, but it only is mentioned two times in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Because we said church about a, a hundred times in this service this morning. Okay, I, I want to ask us, I want, I, wanna, for, I want for us to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. And when Jesus does use the word church, when it comes time to put a name to this kingdom community that he's instituting, uh, this new covenant community, when he marches out to the disciples, this new word, it's an alien word. It's not a word that was used in Judaism, not a word in Judah or Galilee. It's this Gentile word, a Gentile word. Not only that, there's a peculiar place where he introduces the word to his disciples. So another question is, as I said, where, but also when does Jesus actually do this word church for his disciples? Because we'll find out that Jesus introduces this Gentile word church in a very Gentile place, all right? Here's another question. What on earth did his disciples think when he marched, marched out that peculiar alien Gentile word? Another question. Jesus talks all of the time uh, throughout the Gospels about the kingdom of God, but he only introduces the word church in one place at one time, well, really in two places at two times, and, and the kingdom of God is everywhere, so I think it behooves us to ask ourselves the question, and it's a question I don't think we ask too often. What is the relationship between the church and the kingdom? Because there's a whole entourage of Christians out there who think that as long as they're in the kingdom, affecting the kingdom, they're in the church. Is that possible? Is that the way the biblical paradigm would work out? Is that what Jesus would have wanted? Okay. Then there's this other thing. Uh, there's this other thing. As we gather, what is the power and authority that is, you know, that 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 is given to us consequent to gathering that affects the kingdom of God? That's a pretty good question. We use that language all the time. Okay, let's begin with the word church itself. Let's be, just begin with that. Apart from 2,000 years of usage, because that word's been used for 2,000 years, right? Uh, apart from that constant worldwide usage, 
Here's the question. What did the word church mean in the world of the first century Eastern Mediterranean when Jesus marched the word church out to his disciples? Well, here it is. Did you realize that the word church was used in the Eastern Mediterranean world long before Jesus used the word church to his disciples? That's kind of an interesting thing. I would want to know what that meant. So in the Greek world, the word church had a very specific and defined meaning. Greek city-states like Athens, like Athens and, and Delphi and Philippi, those Greek city-states had gatherings, authoritative gatherings that were called churches. Did you realize that? And, and, and Greek city-states did it because Greek city-states had a problem, right? Uh, the, the, the problem was this. Their gods, to whom they sacrificed in their temples, okay, their gods, the Greek pantheon, the, the Roman pantheon, actually the Nordic pantheon, the, the, the Indian pantheon, all those pantheistic uh, faiths had a problem. And, and they, were, they were actually sacrificing to rather trashy gods. Now that sounds terrible, talking about the Greek gods that way. That was the way the Greeks talked, talked about their gods. Are you there? In other words, uh, their gods fought, they raped, they killed their kids, they betrayed one another, they were constantly jealous. Are you there? And so, well, why would they sacrifice to them? Well, in the Greek and Roman pantheons, they were sacrificing to them because they needed to keep them at bay. They needed to satisfy them. Are you there? Which is a very different kind of, of working out of faith than we understand faith today. Even across the, the, the world religions, it doesn't work like that except in pantheistic sim, uh, uh, systems, okay? So the whole sacrificial system in the Greek world, are you following me here? Existed to merely satisfy those gods and keep them at bay. Now, you're following me, right? That's pretty interesting, and it's very different. So the Greeks, all their philosophers, you've got Sophocles, Aristotle, all their philosophers essentially began to ask themselves a question that the Hebrews never had to ask themselves. And what was that question? They asked, well, if we can't get our morality and our ethics and how we're supposed to behave, and the way that we're supposed to act, if we can't get them from our gods and learn how to do that, where are we going to get them from? And the answer to that question was this. They said, we can't get them from there. Well, then maybe we need to get them from ourselves, right? And democracy was born. Huh? Democracy was born in the Greek city-state system. And they decided to form in their cities authoritative gatherings in each city-state to ensure behavior, public order, law, civility, things like that, and ethics and morality. And, and the democratic gatherings uh, in those city-states for the governance of each city was called, guess what? The church. Wow. How far is Athens from Jerusalem, huh? Okay, so the church was this authoritative governing power of the, of the state, and it was composed of an assortment of citizens. 
It wasn't completely, it was, wasn't classless. It was the, 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 the landowners and the, and the bourgeois of the, of the Greek systems. And they, when they were supposed to meet, this is really cool. When the, when the church in the Greek city-state was supposed to meet, a guy would walk through this, the city and say, the word for church is ecclesia. The ecclesia is going to meet. The ecclesia is going to meet. The ecclesia, ecclesia is going to meet. And he would call out the members of the ecclesia, and they would fall, come into wherever, whatever arena that they met, and they would adjudicate the, the, the government of the city-state. Guess what the name of the guy was who did that calling out? He was called an evangelist. I mean, literally. You, you see, there's a paradigm working its way into Christianity that, that it's really kind of, we think, you know, all these things came directly from heaven. Well, they came from heaven, but not directly. There was a, a, a usefulness to what was going on. So anyway, so the word church, before there ever was a religious church like us, okay, meant an authoritative people who were called out to gather together. So ekklesia is the Greek word for church. And it comes from the word in Greek, kletos, which means to call, and ek, which means out of. And by the way, where's Ekum? Is she here or is she downstairs with the kids? You did a great job. Ek made me think of you. You did such a great job this morning. It was great. It was, so let's give Ekum a hand because she really... All right, so you never knew your, your Nigerian name had a Greek equivalent, right? <laughs> so watch this. At its most basic, then, you know, at its most basic definition, I'm not talking about religious church. I'm not talking about who we are. It's where our church comes from. The definition of church is this. It's the church is an authoritative, identifiable, everybody say identifiable, identifiable. You know who it is. You know where it is, what it is. Local group of people called to gather together, okay? To show up, to schmooze, to rub elbows, to have authority, to have power. That was the deal. That was what the understanding, even among the Hebrews, was of what the Greek city-state churches looked like. Now, it's really interesting. Probably the closest Greek city-state to Galilee was a place called Decapolis, which, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Howard sent me a, uh, an email last year when he was in Israel from Decapolis, from Pan's Cave. And so we're going to go there in just a second. Now, this word ekklesia, I'm, I realize I'm teaching today but I'm trying to set up a platform for the next, because like next week is Father's, Father's Day, and Trisha and I are going to do something in here, and Ian and Selena are going to do something out in Makunji. So it's going to be a lot, a lot more schmutzy, so I'm teaching today, okay? So, okay. So the word ecclesia is where the Spanish get their word iglesia, right? Or the French, l'église. Uh, and where we get the word in, in English, uh, ecclesiastical. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's that word, okay? Now, here's a little interesting tidbit. The word church in English does not come from the word ecclesia in Greek, like in the Spanish, French, and most of the Latin traditions. The word church in English 
comes from the old German word Kirche, which means a building. How, you know, isn't that interesting? So over, uh, over the centuries, there was a shift in thinking uh, uh, regarding what the church is. So see, somewhere along the line, the church became the church became something other than a gathered group of people for authority and for power and for protection, and it became a building. Huh? But if you said to a first century Christian, hey, there's a church up the street, they would not image a building. They would image us. Are you there? Because the scriptures describe us, not 21 East Broad Street. Are you there? This is really important because this has worked its way into our thinking and into our, our, our whole culture. Okay, so uh, where and when then does Jesus come up with this innovation where suddenly it's not synagogue, assembly, temple, all those other things, it's church. Well, where and when does that happen? Well, let's turn, I want us first to turn to Matthew 16, and beginning in verse 13, we're going to describe that. And all of us know the story, but we tend not to recognize the real significance of the story. Okay, so I'll begin with my running commenta- uh, commentary in, in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of, here we are, Caesarea Philippi, it was an area that was ruled by a Greek city-state that had a church that had nothing to do with the religious system of the day. You see, you see the, 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 uh, the whole uh, con- construct that's going on here. Okay, and the place here is important because Jesus had left, he had intentionally left uh, Ju- Judah and Galilee with his disciples and entered into the Greek world. Hmm. And he's, t- he's taking his disciples out of their cultural comfort zone to ask a very, very, very supreme question. Jesus is something, doing something that I would call creative disorientation, all right? Has anybody, has God ever taken you into creative disorientation like a thousand times, right? All right, so he asked his disciples, okay, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in verse 14, they say to him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In verse 15, he says, okay, but who do you, this plural you, he's asking all of them, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, that's Messiah. You are the Messiah. And then he says this, because they had already intuited to a certain extent that Jesus was Messiah. But in Judaism, very few were thinking that Messiah would be the Son of God. And Peter says, you are Messiah, the Son of the living God, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, specifically Peter. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. By the way, Barjona is Aramaic and it means son of John, but it also means son of the spirit. So it's not necessarily true that Peter's father's name was John. The idea here is Peter's getting something from the Holy Ghost. Are you there? 
All right? He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, or little rock, and on this rock, the rock of the revelation of who I am, okay, I will build. Here it comes, first time from the mouth of Jesus, first time ever, here it comes, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Here's that relationship between church and kingdom. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and then this is the consequence of it. Whatever you bind, it says, I'm reading from the ESV, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. It reads this way in Greek. It's the only place in, that I'm aware of in the New Testament where this tense is used called the future perfect. And it says this, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. The effectiveness of, of the government of the church, the effectiveness that we have in binding and loosing is an established fact. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, why don't we see it that way all the time? What, what's, the, what's the measure and the, the reason for our ineffectiveness sometimes? Okay, so there are a couple of really key takeaways here that we rarely ask ourselves. I, I always wonder what on earth the disciples thought when Jesus introduced that word church. Because watch this. Jesus pointedly did not say. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my assembly. Huh? He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my temple. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my synagogue. He didn't say, upon this rock, I'll build my fellowship. He didn't say, upon this rock, I'll build my community. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my house. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my household. He didn't say, upon this rock, I will build my denomination. He didn't say, upon my rock, I will build this faith group and on and on. All those words in Aramaic and Hebrew were available to him and he disses them. And he comes up in a Greek place with a city-state, he comes up with this idea, he comes up with this notion of church. And, and, and I, I think to myself, here's another place where Jesus completely disorients everybody to institute where this thing called the kingdom of God is going. There's one other takeaway uh, from this, from this uh, uh, verse, in these verses in Matthew 16. And Jesus tells us what, watch. He tells us what the domain is for the authority and the power of the church that's about to be exercised. Well, where does he do, do that? He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And here are the keys to the kingdom. See, that's the domain, right? If we believe in Jesus, the son of God, he gives us keys, see? Keys are a symbol of domain, okay? They provide entrance into a territory, a dominion for which you and, I, you and me, us together, and all the other churches that name the name of Jesus have authority and power and can provide protection. 
That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so he says, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell don't stand a chance. Hallelujah? Is that worth a hallelujah? You know, yeah, really. So, all right. And this is really important then. The domain of the church is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. If you're reading Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. If you read the other gospels, it's the kingdom of God because um, there are reasons for that, but I won't get into it. Okay, so the domain of the church is that, but watch this. There's more than one key. And what's interesting to me is that whenever you see like medieval pictures of, of uh, St. Peter, you know, paintings and so forth, he typically has two keys in his hand. That's true. Now, the scripture doesn't say two keys, it just says more than one key. And we know from where we're going that there were at least two keys, okay? So traditionally, there are two keys for the domain of the kingdom of God. So from this text, we can expand. I want to expand our definition of not of what church was in the Greek city-states, but what is the church that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, has built and established and is continuing to build in our midst today. Whether you're virtually on or virtually watching or whether you're here, what is that definition? Here it is. The church, I'm expanding the other definition, is a gathered, identifiable, local group of people called by God to display and implement the kingdom of God. That's so important, I'm going to say it again. The church is a gathered, come together, you know, up each other's noses, rubbing elbows, doing all the stuff the church does, is a gathered, identifiable. You can see it. You can, you can, you can come to it. It's there. It's not nebulous. It's not three people at Starbucks on Saturday morning. Although it's great to get together as brothers and sisters at Starbucks on Saturday morning if the other person is paying. So, <laughs> so called by God to display and implement the kingdom of God. Now, in our like tribe, we're charismatics. So in our tribe, we love to say and, and to exercise what Jesus says next, where he says, whatever things we bind or loose on earth will have been bound and loose in heaven. And, th and that we have power and authority as a believing church. We talked about that this morning. That's where the testimonies came from. And we have the gifts of the spirit. So we bind the demonic and the dark. By the way, did you realize that the Greeks referred to their own gods, with the exception of Zeus, the Greeks referred to their own gods as demons? Isn't that fascinating, huh? Demon, yeah? Anyway, so uh, we have this power to loose and bind, and we have the gifts of the Spirit, and we have uh, creative words and healings and, and, and deliverance and all these things that the Holy Spirit has endowed us with in order to do the work of the church. It's, it's like fascinating, it's wonderful, it's the power and authority that, 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 that we've been given to by the Lord. Well, I have two things here. Um, that's the one key, but it's not the only key. Are you there? All right, so by the way, we need, to, we need to define power and authority. Okay, because we use those words almost as if they're synonymous 
right? The power and authority are the same thing. They're not. See, power is our capacity to implement the purposes of God. Do we, do we realize we all have the capacity to do this, right? Watch this. Authority is our right to implement the purposes of God. We have the right. Well, why don't we have the right? Because we're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Son of the living God, who died for us, who defeated hell, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and is king, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are enthroned with him, the book of Revelation says, as he is enthroned with the Father, and we got the right to pray for people and expect for healing. We got the right to be able to lay hands upon those who are demonized and expect for them to be loosed. Are you there? There's good news in the kingdom. Yeah. Power, power, you know, it's, a, it's that, that Pentecostal kind of thing. See, if you say, in those circles, if you say power instead of power, if you say power, it's, it's greater, right? Or if, if instead of glory, they say glory, and you draw out that first syllable, and God's greater than we thought. Anyway, so, <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, power is our capacity, okay? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus said, you know, stay in Jerusalem, and stay in Jerusalem, and I'll send the Holy Spirit upon you so you can have a good prayer meeting. He didn't say that. He said, stay in Jerusalem, you will receive power. We receive power. All right. Okay. So, ideally, the gathered church has power and authority. And I would go so far as to say, and I, there's no such thing as an ungathered church in Scripture, right? But watch this. I would say a church that refuses to gather... I mean, Jesus said to Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you, but you would not. So a church that refuses to gather is going to limit or mitigate the power and authority that was given to them by Jesus when he instituted and began to build the church. Are, are you there? See, so this is kind of important. Uh, all of these, uh, the, the gathered church is God's primary vehicle for the kingdom. And so all of these testimonies that we've been hearing, answers to prayer, healings, new jobs, breaking of addictions, we've heard all these things over the course of these weeks, they are the consequence of the power and authority that God has given us as the church. That's why our enemy, this, this principality, has militated against our gathering. Well, you say, yeah, but it's militated against the MLB. They couldn't gather. Soccer players couldn't gather. Bridge clubs couldn't gather. Elks clubs couldn't gather. Listen, the devil isn't worried about that other stuff. Are you there? It's us. All right. I mean, this is a profound kind of understanding. All right. So while we're thankful and full of praise to the living God, we also know that this thing called church and kingdom doesn't work without bumps, huh? There are bumps in the process. It, it ain't perfect. Okay, well, if Jesus established it, why ain't it perfect? And most of us probably would default and say, it's that, excuse me here, it's that damn devil. It's, <laughs> he, that devil's a dirty dog, you know. 
I can't explore this fully this morning. It's, it's, it's beyond my reach. But I will say this. Jesus said, behold, to his disciples and to us, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all, all the power of the enemy. Well, we were talking just about authority, right? We have authority. Well, what's the nature of the authority? Jesus, I've given you all authority over the enemy. So, so, okay. If we have all authority, what that means is this. That means that whatever authority the devil is given to, to exploit, to mitigate the power of the church, we concede. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, here's a key. There's another key. <laughs> here's a key. There's another key. All right? The answer is that it lies in another key. And remember that there is another key. So we're going to look at Matthew 18, which is the only other place in the Gospels before Jesus ascends where he uses the word church. And it's still in Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so I want to turn just for a second and look at this uh, really quickly. And we're in Matthew 18, and we're going to begin in verse 15. And he says this. He says, if your brother or sister, it's generic, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him or her alone. And if he listens to you, and here's the whole point, you have gained. Other translations say, you've won them. You've gained them and won them. This is incredibly important for, for the kingdom of God and for the church to be able to exercise itself in power and authority effectively. But verse 16, but if he doesn't listen, take one or two among you along with him. This is a love proposition, that every charge that may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, and here's that crazy word again. All right. We love Matthew 16. Matthew 18. This is the bookend piece. Here's that crazy word. Tell it to the church. Huh? Well, why the church? Because the church can do stuff. It can exercise power and authority. It can pray. It can love. It can counsel. It can, it can reach out. It can do all kinds of effective things to implement the, 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 the kingdom of God. And then, this is kind of a brrr, and if he refuses to listen even to the church or she, well, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that, you know, that, that sounds like an excuse for shunning people, but can I remind us that Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors all the time, okay? But in this context, there is an exclusion. They've excluded themselves from the power, authority, and protection that the gathered church supplies. All right. We don't go to this one as much as we go to Matthew 16. He says, truly, I, I love this. Watch what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, uh, whatever you bind on earth, does that sound familiar? 
shall have been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What, what's not obvious here is that the, the you, because we have one word, you, and it means plural or uh, singular. So if I say, I saw you, you don't know if I mean all of you or one of you, yeah? Unless you say, I saw yous, or I saw youins, or I saw y'all. Anyway, that's how we get out of it. All right, so he says, I saw y'all, okay? He says, truly I say to you, whatever you all bound, bind in, uh, in heaven shall be, whatever you all bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Okay, okay. Again, I say to you, if two of, of you uh, agree on earth about anything, in my name it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's church. All right. This is the key. Follow me here because this is so huge. This is the key in the calculus of the relationship between the church and the kingdom. Okay? And we don't like to run here so much. It has to do with kingdom character, kingdom integrity. Ah, I want to do the deliverance. I want to see the sick healed, but don't ask me, you know, you know, not to smoke dope or whatever, you know. It's, it's like, it's, look, it's this. It says it has to do with kingdom character, kingdom integrity, kingdom morality, kingdom behavior. Oh, watch this. Kingdom submission, kingdom humility, kingdom accountability. Oh, man, I don't know. Do you mean there's leadership and authority and accountability in this thing called church? Well, that's no fun. The other stuff is fun, but this isn't fun, you know. And we like to talk about kingdom power, but we don't like to talk about relational integrity so much. We don't talk, like to talk about expending energy to maintain relationships, to build relationships, to, to assure that relationships remain godly, to, to encourage one another into love, which is throughout the whole scripture. Are, are you there? Because that, that's a, I mean, how many times over 40 years of ministry have I said, well, did you go to them and try and talk this through? I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that later. And later never happens. Are you there? You know, and, and so people are walking around everywhere on earth with burrs in their saddle and, you know, thorns up their noses for one another. But it's okay because, you know, I can lay hands on the sick and believe for healing. But that's only one of the keys. Am I making sense here? I mean, this is an amazing thing that Jesus only uses these words twice. Okay, so the second domain is that we have responsibility, brothers and sisters, and people online, people in Mukunji, you know, if you're within earshot, we have responsibility together over the integrity and, and the morality and the, 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 the well-being and the emotional health and the moral health of one another in this thing called the church. So watch this. The church is the glue that holds kingdom power and kingdom authority in tandem. You know what tandem means? That's when two horses walk together or two, two, uh, uh, two uh, could be anything. It could be cattle or anything, or pulling a cart, and they're in tandem. It doesn't mean they pull 
the same with the same power, but one of the one of the the uh, cattle or the horse or whatever it is has to adjust the way that it pulls to be in concert with the other thing. And see, <laughs> for 2,000 years, it's been very difficult for the church to pull its power and authority in tandem with its moral character. Am I just, am I, am I the only one missing this? You know, and I need to say I'm the chiefest of sinners as well, okay? So I love the gift of the Holy Ghost, but if we're riding a gravy train merely in the exercise of our giftedness, the prophecy, the tongues, all that good stuff, humility is a really tough commodity to come up with if I won't sit next to my brother or sister. Yeah? Uh, Jesus said to Jerusalem, as I said, I just wanted to gather you together, but you, uh, th that, that, those words come to me all through this pandemic, you would not. Right? That's the temptation of this season as we're coming out of the pandemic. So the discipline of church and church family are transformational. And uh, mercifully, the discipline is, is more often informal than formal, you know. I mean, look, not many people bring people before the church anymore. Why? Because, you see, I've learned over 40 years that in 21st century America, if somebody's caught in sin, in a serious sin, and we bring them, they bring, they're brought before the church, so we, we, however gently we can, attempt to effect redemption to them. They get mad and leave, and two weeks later, they're teaching Sunday school up the street. Am, am I right? <laughs> All right. So, so it's, it's kind of hard to effect. All right. All right. I'm going to close with this. Aren't you glad I'm going to close? And I really am going to close. All right. And I'm over. I realize that. But this is, this is pretty important if we're gonna understand a gathered church, okay? C.S. Lewis talk, talks about this in his book, God in the Dock, and he's got this little chapter. Now, I'm, I always assume everybody knows who C.S. Lewis was. He did the, the non, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and he was a tremendous medieval scholar and so forth. But what, what a lot of us don't know, he was an atheist for years and years. He became an Oxford Don, meaning an Oxford professor. It's about as high in academia as you can get in the UK. And, and then he, 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 became, he became a Christian. And I, I won't get into how that happened, but when he became a Christian, he was still you know, a fairly um, recognized, upper-class, uh, snooty kind of Englishman you know, and, and, and he, he was at Oxford, and, but he was now in Christ. And then he says, so this is what he says in God in the Dock. He says, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, he said, I thought that I could do it all on my own. Okay. By retiring to rooms alone, reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches. I wouldn't go to the gospel halls. He said, I dis I love this. He <laughs> Listen, worship team, don't take this badly, okay? He said, I disliked very much their songs and hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to music. <laughs> Sixth-rate music, you know? <laughs> Got a little snoot problem there, doesn't he, you know? 
<laughs> All right. But as I went on in my faith life, I, I, I saw the great merit of coming together. I came up against different people, quite different outlooks, quite different educations than me. And then gradually, my conceit, you could say my, my pride, began to peel off me. And I realized that those hymns and songs, which were actually sixth-rate music, <laughs> were never, nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, being sung with devotion and with benefit by an old saint next to me in rubber side boots in the opposite pew, yeah? And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean his boots. Boy, I don't, I don't got that revelation, you know? Man. And it gets you out of your solitary pride. Yeah. Hallelujah. Man. You know, how many times, especially in a church like ours, this, is, this happens almost twice a month. And you worship leaders, I love you guys. You, and you, you musicians, I just love you, what you do. Because there's always somebody who comes up and says, oh, worship didn't make it today. Are you there? You know, worship was, it was okay. Or, like, who gives you the right? I mean, I just think, really? I got God. I don't think I've ever walked into NC4 any Sunday ever where I was worshiping and I didn't get God. Amen. I'm telling you. So whose fault is that? I mean, in Haiti, you know, you worship with an accordion up front and a very old bad accordion with a, uh, a, a rough accordion player and they hit heaven. Yeah, yeah, West Africa. But boy, I'll tell you what, if, if, I don't know, if the sound booth does something wrong, suddenly the Holy Ghost leaves America. You know, I just don't get it. You know, consumer church, church exists. Church doesn't exist for us. It exists for Jesus, you know? You know, I, you know, some of you know that I'm gonna go into some kind of retirement the next year or two, and, and I'm telling you, there better not ever be a picture of me <laughs> anywhere in this church that says the founder, you know, what a crock, you know. <laughs> There's only one founder, and it's Jesus Christ. And he doesn't even want his picture up there. You know, <laughs> you know this is the kind of stuff, all right, now I'm editorializing. Okay, so if we could all stand. So many of us, and we are 10 minutes over, I apologize. So last week, a lot of us took a stone. Please, if you didn't get to last week's message, would you get to it and find a stone? Okay. Bob never gave me his wheelbarrow. I want you all to know that. So last week, many of us took a stone from a wheelbarrow or maybe from our yard if you're watching online. And I hope that during this series of teachings on gathering, uh, we really seek God to discover how do we fit as a living stone. You see, it, we're not just a heap of stones. We're a building firmly fit, Peter says, yeah? 
How do we fit? Where do we fit? And I want you to hold that stone and pray. And when we do that, we can thank God for what he gives us to fit with, all of us. All of our warts and everything else are important <laughs> because it gives cause for the other person to love. Huh? All right. So it's late, and uh, I, I'm not going to invite the musicians up because some of the people here will lose the will to live. And <laughs> uh, we're just going to close this way. Um, I want us to, to sing the doxology three times. We do this every once in a while. But I want us to do it in thanksgiving for the church. Not only New Covenant, but all the churches that, that name the name of Jesus in the Lehigh Valley. By the way, there, there is a, a dimension of this teaching that goes to geographic domain. Well, I'm talking about the Lehigh Valley. That's what we're called to, yeah? And so we're just going to thank God for all the people across the valley who are coming back together and are going to find out where they fit. And I am believing for a day of visitation from the presence of the living God. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless my brothers and sisters. I thank you for them. Thank you for me and my wife. Thank you for this church, 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 this gathered local assembly, Makanji, Bethlehem with... Wow, with power and authority that we've never realized or dreamed about. And so we ask we would become discoverers, explorers of that in your name. We want to just thank you for one another. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.